Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. Welcome to our first episode of Season 2. We're very excited to be back. To kick off our season, I am joined by Dr. Shambi Polychronis. Shambi is a special education professor in the Education Department at the University of Utah. She's a passionate advocate for disability rights. Her scholarly work and interests include post-school outcomes for students, family support services, and teacher education. And she advocates for alternatives to guardianship, full inclusion in school and community environments, meaningful employment, and eliminating aversive interventions. And today, we speak about resilience. We start off the podcast with the standard question that we ask everyone. And I gave you a bit of a heads up, but here's your question. If you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, church activity, research, the things that we do, tell me a little bit about who you are. What is your greatest accomplishment as a human being and why? The first time I heard that question, I thought, how does anyone answer that, right? It's such a tricky question. Like, who are we when all those things are taken away and, and you get to talk? And it hit me yesterday, um, for better or for worse, and I'm going to say this both, right? I'm an empath, right? I feel for what other people are going through. And so sometimes that means I live trauma that I don't have to, or, you know, I, I'm down when I don't have to be. But it also is also what what provokes me into really doing things differently um, and taking action and speaking up. Um, I'm going to be full of contradictions. You'll probably even hear them in our time today, uh, where I feel this one way, and then you'll you'll be listening and say, "Wait, you just said this other thing." Um, but I think that's part of who I am too. And you know, that whole idea of just being an activist in an area because I feel pain for people um, that, that might not have the voice and the, the platform that I do. Shabby, I love that you said that actually, because in preparation for today, I was reading your uh, rate my professor to see oh. <laughs> what your students um, might have said about you. And there is language in there over and over from students saying that, um, that they knew, like that they know that they would be heard if you, if they came to you for anything. That you will listen and hear them. And uh, like one student said, Shambi knows me better than I know myself. <laughs> so I think that goes along with your uh, empath uh, leanings because you you're going to be with someone like that. I, I'm interested in hearing you talk about that a little bit. I picked up this definition of resilience, which is, uh, it, can, it feels big to me, but um, it says, psychologists define resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. Right. Does that make sense for you? 
Oh, absolutely. And and I think there's there's an important aspect also to recognize and honor, and that's the role of mental health in, in resiliency. And I've, I've thought a lot about this since being asked to talk about resiliency and, and with, with my background in disability and, um, you know, recognizing these are not necessarily deficits and we shouldn't talk about them as deficits. But I thought, so what's the difference between someone who's resilient? We hear these stories about these immense childhood traumas that happen and some people that, that like literally defines a really difficult life for them. Um, and then other people you hear go off and make these wonderful lives. And what's the big difference? And I've thought about that, and, and especially my own um, story, right? Um, I have uh, trauma from childhood, and, you know, I've, I've experienced a lot of, of difficult uh, things, uh, both by strangers and by people I care about. And, you know, it, it leads through every year of my life. Um, you know, I've been in toxic workspaces. I've um, had relationships that's crumbled. Um, so what's the difference? How, how do you pick yourself up and walk away? And, and especially when somebody calls out like, wow, that was resilient. How, tell me how you did that. So I've had to think a lot, like, how did I do that? And, and what I recognize is, first of all, what are your goals and priorities? And if your goal is this thing, and for me, it was always to get through school. I always wanted to be a teacher from as long as I can remember. Um, so that was always my goal. And when things fall in your way, and for example, I had a school counselor that, um, you know, just was not very talented at talking to small rural kids about going to college, right? And, um, for a lot of kids, that meant that's not a reality for me, maybe, right? Um, and for me, it just meant I need to search information. I'm a first-generation college student anyway, and so I had to figure out how to get this information. Most of what I operated on, by the way, was error, <laughs> like entirely error. Um, I did everything wrong and learned things the hard way, and it cost me money that I didn't have. But part of that resilience was like knowing that, okay, this horrible barrier is in my way, whether it's trauma, um, it's lack of money, it's access to something, it's somebody actively standing in my way, that's not going to work. So how do I go about it? Right? I and love that you talk about that, Shambi, because and right away, because when I was doing some reading about this subject, one of the key characteristics of individuals who are resilient are that they have purpose. Yeah. Absolutely. And you are talking about that you did from the time you were small. I, I absolutely. And and I'm going to spoil the ending here so that when <laughs> people are listening, they're like, oh, you know, this person thinks it out? It figured out. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know, I ebb and flow out of this stage, right? I mean, sometimes I'm really resilient and then other times these situations really drag me down, right? And it just kind of depends on what it is and why I'm there. And I actually struggle with it more in my adult life than I did as a kid, because as a kid, regardless of what fell in my way, uh, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I knew I had to get there. I didn't know how. And so if something did, the process broke somewhere along the line, I, I tried to figure out a different way. Um, where now, you know, I had my dream job. I, I worked where I wanted to work, doing what I wanted to do. And so when that space became toxic and, and I became toxic, I contributed to that. Um, and, and one day I woke up and thought, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to be. This is not this is not good for anybody. And I recognized what I was modeling actually for my kids that, yeah, go ahead and sell out your, your whole value system for a job and a title. And the minute I realized that I thought it's time to do it differently. I, I got, I've got to do something different. I'm not who I want to be. And I don't like what this is doing to me. Um, wow. And so, That's a huge yeah. thing to just sit and think about. Um, it's so scary. And it took, a and long I want time. to bring that out though, for, for our listeners, because they may see you as the as the individual who knows everything about resilience, but I think it's really important to take that moment to say it is a process and it is an exercise and sometimes you might suck at it. Yeah. 
and yeah, fail miserably. I, I, I mean, I'll give you a personal example right now, right? Um, <clears throat> the, the whole move to my new uh, job is very much a process, right? I'm still now trying to build. I walked away from being a full professor. I walked away from um, a good chunk of cash. Um, I took a pay cut and <clears throat> I'm still bouncing back from that somewhat. And, uh, you know, then we immediately enter into a medical crisis in my family, which was tricky. Um, but I was very supported in my new job. So that was, um, I was very fortunate. We enter into COVID times and I, so I didn't have the opportunity to get back on that ladder. I knew I could climb to get to where I thought I wanted to be. Um, so that kind of kept me at a level that I thought, wow, I didn't anticipate being at, you know, where I am right now for very long. Um, and then I go into a death in my family that um, totally changed my need for finances, <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, all right, all right. So everything changed and it just kind of shut me down. The dialogue, the way we talk to each other, um, this this political season has been, this goes to the downside of being an empath, right? It's, it shut me down. I just, all of a sudden, it just pained it was painful to hear the way we talked to each other and um, the lack of care that we demonstrated towards one another. And so I find myself in this, this is me constantly at a, at a time is like this, this struggle between what I want to be doing, what I know I need to be doing versus what I can do. And I think this is part of resiliency is to really understand one, there is a mental health component to it. And two, we, revere resiliency, but we don't revere what it takes to be resilient, which is a lot of self-care. And sometimes it's about resting and re-energizing. And so I struggled because during the pandemic, like I, you know, we can, I'm sure this will come out, but where my values are, you've been part of this, right, is where my values are, my family is at the top, right? These relationships are at the absolute top. And when those are threatened, like with a pandemic, right, it kind of like puts all of that, like you're in the fight or flight response all the time. And then everything else I cared about, and, and obviously most people can probably re, you know, relate to this, but everything we cared about was under threat this summer, right? So we have the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we have literally people coming out in the streets wanting to be seen and heard. And, um, you know, the way some people reacted to that was surprising and painful to me um, that somebody would say, no, everybody needs to be quiet and just mind, mind themselves. I, you know, as an activist, that's really hard to hear that like, this is, this is the moment. So it, it shut me down. And, and I had these complete competing values. Like I need to keep my family safe. I, we very much live in a bubble. Um, my, my husband's compromised. My 97-year-old mother-in-law was living with us. She's the one that passed away recently. Um, and so it's like my, my entire energy was spent on protecting them. But I also felt this need to be like, I need to be at the protest. I need to be down here. I need to be fighting this. I need to be doing this stuff. I need to be. Um, and, and one day I just had this thought like, okay, what do you do when two values are competing, right? Yeah. Which one's going to win out? And I thought, okay, well, what can I do? I have two possibilities here because for me, going and, and participating in protests was just not realistic. It put my family, I felt like, in jeopardy for, for what I needed to protect them from. But I can financially support um, these causes, right? And, and I probably spent more money this this year on um, various nonprofits uh, be, because I, it's like I, I need to support these organizations doing this really important work, the Human Rights Committee, Utah Pride Center, um, you know, Black Lives Matter Utah, like the, they're doing really important work and I'm not there for it. So what can I do so I can give them money? And then it hit me, oh yeah, I have this skill set, right? It's called teaching. <laughs> I went to school for this. <laughs> and I started picking up um, these opportunities to actually talk about intersectionality of disability, which is where my background is, and 
other things, right? That other identities and, and showing how they're similar and they're different and they're compounding and they're complicating the way people are engaging with them in schools and the community and all of this. And I, that was kind of my contribution is my finances um, I, where I could, I definitely donated to help causes, but then also I contributed my talents to like educating people on why, why they might be frustrated with some political ideology that they feel is just, you know, I don't know, uh, the founding fathers wouldn't approve of or whatever, right? Um, there was some really interesting things all over this summer. But then realizing like, well, this is an educator's moment. This is a time where we tell people, this is why it matters what you say, you know, using ableistic language is, is problematic because it hurts people. If people don't know that, they, they, do things that are painful to other people. So that's that's kind of how I bounce back resilient wise with this latest situation is I'm in a funk, but I still feel driven to do something about it, you know? I'm really interested in how we as a society think about resiliency. And I'm feeling it particularly acutely as we record this right now because there's this, you know, like there's this, opportunity for hope that this is going to go away, right? We have vaccines. Um, they're not completely distributed, but they're there. We know they exist. Um, and however, at the same time, we also know that this is probably the most dangerous time in terms of illness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how do we how, how is it that we as a society can use our resilience in this time? Like, do you, you know what I mean? Right, right. Well, and this one's tricky too, because I know that there's, there's a, a discussion around where there's some people right off the bat that are like, look, if you haven't used this time to learn a new language, pick up a computer gig, you know, a side hustle, all of this. And then others of us are like, hey, so I'm, I rolled out of bed today and that's a super win, you know? Like, yes, you yeah. Know? I think there's this this idea that we don't have to be resilient all of the time. I, I remember having a conversation when somebody said, look, my identity is challenging in every environment I'm in and I'm just tired and, and I don't want to be the person. I don't want to be the person educating people all the time. Like I'm not okay with that right now. Yeah. And I remember telling them, it's okay, take a break, trust the people around you, right? Center yourself, make sure that there are people left that are still speaking on your behalf. But this is also when people who aren't as highly impacted get to maybe take a little bit of the heat for a little bit and say what needs to be said, but make sure it's what you want being said, right? And and even those words come back to me sometimes, right? Um and, but one of the things that I, I took away from that and I've learned is maybe this idea that, you know, the, the saying, you know better, do better. I find that to be a process, right? Because sometimes we learn things and then it's like, oh, especially this year with cancel culture, right? <laughs> like, yeah. things and, and everybody kind of stopped and thought, wow, have I... Um, have I done this thing? Have I said this thing? I mean, I was a child of the 80s, right? So, so we did things that I certainly wouldn't want someone to think that's how I felt now. Um, I, th I think that's just part of growing. But the difference is like, do you acknowledge it? Do you do better? Do you apologize? And then do you actively, like, the, what's the action involved? And that's a process. It's not just like a one-time donation for something, although that helps too. I, I listened to somebody who said, I, I put a little sticky note on my tabletop. And every time I say something ableistic, I put down a, a hashtag. And that's five bucks I owe a disability rights organization. And it quickly curbed my language, right? <laughs> it, is holding myself accountable. Um, and I've had personal situations where the minute you receive critique, and I've already said critique's hard for me, I think it's hard for most people, but when you're an empath, like it just hurts your soul to know that you've done something wrong. And especially if you've injured somebody, that's really hard. Even though my response is kind of automatically like, no, I didn't, or like <laughs> anger. <laughs> Yeah. No. And then you have to calm down and be like, all right, if I can pull myself out of that for, for a minute. Now I owe them two apologies because I did it wrong and I responded incorrectly about it. So we got to have a conversation back. But now I got to do something different. I read this article 
that said that in many ways we are currently living in the gilded age of failure in which we fetishize the recovery stories and this person had this terrible experience and now look what happened to them and we don't talk about the you know the struggle and how hard and dark and long that can be and i'm just and i feel like we might do that with regard to the stories we tell about individuals with disabilities, right? Absolutely. You know, this was one of those things. So when you're trained as a teacher to go into special education, you're taught very much in the fix-it model, like where are students struggling and that's where we fix it, right? Or we, we uh, needs and, and skill sets, right? And then when you actually talk to students, you're like, all right, so the language I use is deficit model. Um, it teaches us to think you're broken until we fix you. Um, that felt ugly. And then I had a child who had, um, you know, really struggled uh, early on academically, but with speech, it started with, we had all sorts of testing done early on. And I thought, wow, I don't like any of this language being applied to him either. Like, okay, we gotta, we gotta get past the way we talk about this. So years ago, um, there started to become, now I wouldn't just Google this, by the way, but <laughs> I mean, you can, but it comes up with some interesting filters. Um, but the, the term pop popped up called inspiration porn. And what comes out of that is, is exactly what you're talking about. I'm so inspired by somebody doing basic things or very little. We're going to give an award to this person because they woke up and showed up and it's like, whoa, that's really insulting. They're, they're, they're trying really cool stuff or, or they're struggling or they're into something or they recognize they're not in a good space and they just got an award or any of those things, right? Or the way that we put ourselves above others by saying, well, I at least have physical mobility. Okay. Well, would you say that in the room with somebody who didn't, right? Would you say right. that with would you put yourself like that? And the way we talk about that, we, we say words without really thinking about it. Crazy, idiot, those kinds of words that they have historical context that's so problematic. And people can fight me on, on the words that, oh yeah, that's not problematic. Or everyone knows when I use the R word, I'm just talking about myself, right? Um, <laughs> okay. We have somehow agreed mostly um, that that language of racism is violence and racism uh, or a language of sexism is violence, but ableism people just won't let go of, right? And, and at the root of it really is this idea of a lesser or more than human. And so this Estella Young does this beautiful talk. She's since passed away, but she's she's an Australian comedian who also has a teaching background. And she specifically said, you know, I am not existing to make you feel better about your shortcomings, right? Um, I don't need you to be like, oh, isn't she inspirational for just existing, right? And she's like, I get inspired, but it's by people who are creative. I learn from other disabled people all the time. Time. Um, I learned that you can use a barbecue tong to pick things up when you can't reach the ground. I've learned you can charge your cell phone from your battery pack. Like, yes, I'm inspired, but you got to be inspired by the right things. And when we put people, we almost fetishize, fetishize people who have gotten over something. Um, and that's what we say is successful. It's highly impactful for people who can't get over something or don't want to get over something like fully accepting someone for who they are is so important. And we seem to struggle with that in every marginalized group, just love people for who they are. We currently have a politician that has, um, it's one of those love them or hate them kind of moments, but got a huge, huge public outcry of support because he loves our country so much. He stood up out of his wheelchair so that's incredibly offensive, by the way, is to say, like, that's how you show love. Well, there's people that don't and can't stand up out of a wheelchair, and that doesn't mean they don't love their country as much or even more than this, this dude that, that is, like, throwing disability around as an accessory. Um, and for other people to 
hold that in high regard just shows you we have some work to do, right? And and I guess this is where my resiliency comes from is I, I shut down, I do self-care, I even get in dark places at times where I'm not really productive like I could be. Um, and yet at the same time, I realize like that's needed. Like, you know, I have to put groceries back in my cupboard. I can't just cook all the time. Those Everything gets depleted. We need breaks. We need to restock. Um, and not every... Thing, like even to keep going with the cooking analogy, not everything has to be a five star meal. Sometimes you just need a tuna fish sandwich to make it through the day, right? And so, like okay. this, yeah, like this. And idea, that looks like resilience. You know, I look back, would I want to do it again? Absolutely not. Most things I've done, I wouldn't want to do again. But would I replace them? Would I replace some of the most horrific moments in my life? And I've had several of them that are incredibly traumatizing as a child um, and, and a lot by strangers, by the way, you know, but um, I don't know that I would change that. I mean, I certainly didn't want to sign up for it. I wouldn't ever want somebody else to go through it, even though they do, but it's, it's also who I am and it's made me who I am. And it makes me resilient to say, no matter what somebody does to me, it will stick. It will be painful, but I got to get past it because that person doesn't even care about me. Right. They don't care if I succeed or I fail. They, they got what they wanted for that moment and it's over. So yeah, you know, you kind of pick yourself up and think the only person I'm hurting by stopping is myself. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website, at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we're speaking with Dr. Shambi Polychromis. Let's jump back in. things I'm interested in talking about and I know that this you've brought it up a little bit in terms of um, being the parent of a person who labels may have been put upon Um, Mm -hmm. but I really am interested in the discussion about parenting and raising resilient children um, and what that might mean and I had this um, like I read of course this is Brene Brown stuff but she talks about you know like resilience is not something that children have or don't have. It's not like it's a trait that you have or you don't have. It is, um, it's a skill that we can develop as we grow. And I'm interested in whether or how you've seen that or if, and especially because not only are you a parent, but your role is teaching. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about watching or helping to develop resilience in in children or the people that we love yeah that's a great question so i've mentioned this before in the center of my world right everything around me is my family i have an amazing supportive husband that i think goes back to why i'm resilient because i know i can fail and it's not i'm not going to lose everything right um i my kids are everything to me but this idea also of chosen family i have people i have selected into my life you know um and and they're important to me like family and so how do i share with them resiliency (laughs) there's a couple things actually like there was something my mom used to say, and I think it's a, you know, I, I do know it, it's, it's kind of religious background, which is funny because we, we weren't brought up like that. But my mom used to say whenever something hard happened, she, you know, she'd be like, this too, my dear, shall pass. And at the time, I remember feeling so kind of like shoved off by it. But I'm also Gen X, right? So my generation was like our parents all worked multiple jobs. We raised ourselves. Um, we we literally are forgotten by history anyway. We're not boomers. We're not millennials. <laughs> like, we're, we're just the Gen X group. And so we've learned, well, I think in general, we're pretty scrappy because we're used to being like left to our own vices all the time, right? So, but I wanted to share some of those things with my kids. So this whole idea, but I, I wanted to do it in in a way because I'm an empath and I remember feeling like 
I didn't understand how good of advice that was when my mom would say, this will pass, right? Like, this is temporary. I share that with my student, my students, my kids, my chosen family all the time. Like, look, as ugly as this moment feels, think of who's around you. We're here for you. And you will look back on this and either be a better person for it, or you'll be a stronger person for it, or you'll develop like a superpower, which by the way, I do feel like I developed through a lot of some of my traumatic events was like this superpower to see gaslighting and to see bullshit, right? Is like, this is a superpower. I can see it a hundred miles away. What superpower I now need is like how to speak about it kindly. (laughs) But that's on the road. That's my my next life lesson, which I'm currently struggling. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, going back to building resilient kids, I think, I personally think our conversation, the community is somewhat off around the way we're talking about the current generations. And I say that because I absolutely love Gen Z and millennials. I do. I mean, I think this comes from working in a college, right? Where, where this is who you work with. I don't find them to be um, everything that is poorly written about them. I, I find them to be very creative and compassionate and thoughtful. And they're responding to an environment that they had no control over, right? Um, the, the financial world and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, sometimes when when we talk about resiliency, one of the things is like pick your lesson you want to learn from this and it's going to be maybe ugly, right? But pick it up, learn from it, move on. Uh, I'll give you an example. My son recently, there's a scholarship you can get in Utah when you go off to college and, and you work really hard and you have good grades and he just like scrappy, like made it. And this is the kid that like from the time he was little, he had even speech pathologists telling him you might not you know, do really well in high school and college might not be a thing for you. Right. And, and for him to get there and be able to write and do all of these things, that was huge for him. So he was supposed to get this big scholarship from the state and he did everything and he hit all the deadlines. He's not a procrastinator like I am. Um, He did all this stuff and misread one email. Unfortunately, it was an important email. It was a timeline and um, they sent him several emails and he thought one was the same as the other and said, yes, I've done that. It's good. Um, And therefore lost the entire, it was like $4,000 over two years that you could use towards tuition. And I I mean, the kid was devastated, you know, like, I can't believe I messed up. I can't believe it. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, that was a 35,000 stepped task. Um, (laughs) And you made all of them, but one, right. And what control do you have over that? Well, let's go back. Let's, let's look. So we read through the email and it's like, you know, going back and teaching people how to reread things and what your rights are and what your responsibilities are, what actions you can take, went through every single one of them, followed those avenues. And guess what? It was kind of like a too bad, so sad, right? Like you missed a deadline, you missed a deadline. Um, You can take it up with a lawyer if you really want. And it's like, okay, well, lawyer, $4,000, this is going to be a wash at best, right? (laughs) And he was really bummed because he tried so hard to, to do that. And he was right on task. And we had this conversation about, okay, but what did you learn from that? Well, I need to learn to read something all the way through. And I need to learn how important timelines are, even though we knew that, right? But just recognizing until something is all the way done, keep checking on it. Um, So I'm like, well, that might be the best $4,000 you ever spent for a lesson that could save you more heartache down the road, right? Right. My husband was like, it's an interesting way to think of that. (laughs) But it's like, that's how I've gotten through my whole life is this moment. You know, I got pulled over when I was young and I got a ticket when I had nothing to speak of. I had to go out and get yet another job to pay for a speeding ticket when I was 17 years old. And what did I learn from that? Speeding just isn't worth it to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can you can take it away, and I, I have other thoughts on you know leadership and authority that aren't nearly as positive for the record, right? But well, tell me the- about that because um, I'm really so a couple of things that I that I have in response to that. I love that story with your son because I think um, we know that resilient kids are more likely to take healthy risks. 
-hmm. And that healthy risk-taking might be something we need to do, right? We will never grow unless we take some, and and, and that we can tell the difference between what is a healthy risk and what is an unhealthy risk, Mm -hmm. or what is the thing that keeps us unable to take any risks. It may be a Gen X issue that we're not allowing our children to experience resiliency. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's certainly um, highly possible, right? I mean, I, I, again, I don't, I'm not as negative about the the millennials and the Gen Zs as a lot of folks are. Um, However, I I recognize, and and again, I think we have to think of where the blame is, right? Like the blame is on parents if we have not helped our our kids and our students take risks. But here's, I guess, where my educator brain is on that. How did we help them through it? Like a a quick couple scenarios. Guess how I learned to swim? Gen Xers were thrown into pools, literally as babies, right? And we was for sure. Yeah, right. And the belief was like babies know how to swim, believe they will. And parents were like, yeah, cool, throw them in the day. And my my parenting generation, right? Our kids had life vests. We were in the pools with them. Like, and and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, right? That's that's a right. learned behavior that like, hey, kids don't need to learn by drowning first, you know, or t- being traumatized right. by something. Yeah, we had some trauma for us. Yeah, because of that. <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, you know, but this idea that like, okay, so when do kids learn how to read a, an antiquated email system? To them, email is antiquated. But yet this is how we do business and our generations feel like this is very effective, right? So this is, this is, I mean, nobody gets hardcore mail. And if we do, then everybody's in trouble. <laughs> like when the IRS sends you the mail, you're like, those you open, right? But this, this idea that like, so who taught them to actually like read through something or who taught them what's the proper salutation to use when you're talking to a boss or a professor or like, they don't write sup. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just write, Hey, Shambi, what's up? Yeah. And spell my name wrong. Like, okay, you can call me Shambi, but at least get it right. It's actually in the email already, you know? Um, so like those things, who teaches those? And though that, I think for me, it's, it's more of a, those things have to be taught to that point. Like you have to exercise muscle. You have to, you learn from mentors, you learn from leaders, you learn from parents and friends. Like how do you respond in a crisis? Do you, do you hide from it or do you face it full on or do you get aggressive about it? And whether we know we're doing it or not, we're always teaching people around us how to respond in things. Right. And they can be good or bad. Unfortunately, I think we set a really negative precedent just this last year on how to respond to people that have different opinions opinions than we have, um, that's going to take a long time to relearn for a lot of people. Super interesting because I think that's true, right? I think that that is a societally, what are we, we, we ourselves as a society have experienced several layers worth of trauma, like Mm -hmm. societal trauma that we are all reacting to and we may be doing it in ways for some that are developing resiliency and for others, which we are not. And I wonder how we're going to come out of it. It's just a really interesting thing to think about. It is. I, I've even used my own formula that I, I thought about this today and I thought, okay, if my formula is constantly, no matter what hits you, you know, my bookstore, I, I when I had $0 to my name and really nobody I could ask for money, like my what next was to go out and get a job. Um, where I've been able to provide this different experience for my son when $4,000, which is a lot of money, all of a sudden just got depleted from a bank account. It's like, well, what's next? Well, this is why you worked summers because now it's COVID and you've lost your job. Like this is why this is why those reserves exist. But what's next? How do you fill those reserves? And so I'm like, okay, so if this is my formula, is the whole what's next? We have a value, we have a goal. What's next? I've thought about that in how do I even feel about people right now? 
I mean, I'm an empath and I love people. I'm an extrovert that also needs some some time to myself. It's weird. It's a weird conundrum to always be in. And on one hand, I'll be like, I I distrust people now. I I dislike people. I, I don't like what's in the heart of people. And then three seconds later, going back to the, I'm a walking contradiction. I'm like, hey, I miss you. You want to go get coffee? <laughs> I mean, obviously not coffee now. Now it's Zoom coffees, right? But still kind of that whole idea of, What's next is we've got to build relationships all over again. And some of them might be a lost cause. There are certainly people I've learned um, things about that I, I just won't be able to get over. Uh, it just anybody who's willing to throw a human being um, to the curb and not make sure they're fed and cared for during a really tough time. Like, I'm not sure there's much more that you and I can <laughs> like experience together in a positive way right now that I know this about some people that um that that was really tricky for me um and and the ableism that came through I had to decide like who who on my social media page is somebody that I can have a conversation with about hey so this language you used remember how I've shared with you a hundred times on how problematic that is I'm wondering if now that things have calmed down we can have another conversation about that versus someone that's like that was intentional and cruel and there's just no coming back from it like so I think some of those making decision now on how do we repair worthwhile relationships and how do we know when to end painful ones? And mm -hmm. it's kind of like divorces in a lot of ways is not every relationship is good for us. And once we recognize we going back to refilling and resiliency, if there's people in our lives that are hurting us and, and constantly depleting us, those are not people that we need constantly around us. Um, we might not completely remove ourselves from them either, but recognizing the boundaries that we might need to set with some people is absolutely key to resilience. You need people around you that will call you out when you're acting inappropriately or encourage you when you're down or um, be willing to pick up slack as you take a risk. Like if you're not surrounding yourself by like, if you're not gifted those, right. Um, those people in your life, you, you can surround yourself with them. Like that's the whole concept of a chosen family is like, who do you trust and who's on your inner circle? I was, I'm thinking about that a little bit. Um, and I want to bring it. So I want to talk about who can you trust? Um, who can you, and it's not really necessarily chosen family, but it, it goes to, a notion of high quality connections. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a whole realm of research that Jane Dutton has done. That's amazing work in terms of how we work in uh, how we work. And, and since ultimately in this podcast, we're talking about the, you know, the 92,000 hours that we spend of our lives at work. Um, one of the articles I read about resilience was about creating resilient teams at work and how, um, and, and they talked about one of the most important things that you can do to have resilient employees or to work on a resilient team is to have high quality connections at work and to develop those high quality connections. You have to have communication, support, um, trust and play. You have to have time to play with each other rather than always working. And I'm, I'm just interested in your in understanding from you whether you've had an experience of having a being either on a resilient team, leading a resilient team, watching a resilient team. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's such a great question because it's essential, right? For us to actually make progress in a workspace, we have to be resilient. And individual resilience is not the same as group resilience. Yeah. Um, so one person can bounce back from something, but what about your team? And and we have group goals, you know, like it's a communal experience. And yet there's this danger, and I fell into this, right? It's like it's different than a family, and that's why I think it's important. You you mentioned like let's get let's talk specifically about work because I've fallen into that before with you spend so much time with these people at work and you know we joke about that your work husband and your work wife your work friends and you know and then i'm not saying those lines can't be blurred once in a while where you have work friends and all of that but at the same time it gets conflated where it's like we what is our group goal 
and our group goal in a family versus and and a friendship and a relationship is very different than our group goal as a team at work. And so I've had both of those experiences. And and ironically, I've had both those experiences in the same environment, right, Mm -hmm. where the biggest difference was the leader. And when you have a leader that says, like, first of all, I'm going to lead through example, and I'm going to give everyone credit for the work they're doing. And when someone's struggling, I'm going to be there to support them and see what they need. And I will give resources to them to make sure that they can do their job. And it doesn't need to be a public shaming moment, right? And when you see that and a team almost works effortlessly together, it's really easy to not appreciate all of the things that happen behind the scenes to get it in that space. So when it comes to having that um, connection support, like the way that you have in your personal life, the chosen family at, at work, having those high quality or supportive connections. Tell me about um, the role of individuals who, who are not the leaders. In some ways, I think that there's like this, there can be, and and I think it contributes to, the resiliency of the workplace. And I might be, uh, I might be projecting here because I feel like I see this, um, especially right now. Um, While so many people are either working from home, working through Zoom calls, it's very hard to continue those high quality connections when you don't have those, you know, per se, the water cooler moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, and it's really hard to um, to gauge or um, help the emotional contagion that that happens on teams, and how much of that can be just happening because of our society, and not and not knowing which is which. So I guess my question is, talk to me about how how that has played out for you, or any advice you you might have about how teams can be resilient in the face of this strange working environment we have and our need to connect. Most of us are kind of deeply injured humans, right? We, we've had bad things happen to us. We've had people take advantage. We've had people hurt us in our personal lives, in our workspaces, all of those things. And we're supposed to just like somehow offload that when we walk into a meeting, right? We're supposed to like pretend we don't get offended when people are sexist or, and they don't even know they're being sexist, right? I I mean, like if we can create space where we can really hold each other accountable, um, but I think that's that, that builds resiliency and it's also a resilient behavior. Oh, that's lovely. I just wanted to talk about one more thing with regard to it, which I, I read this this quote from Khalil Gibran that I think is beautiful. And it says, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. And, and that is beautiful. And I just feel like I want to acknowledge the, the deep tissue scars that people have in some ways. I just want to say like, it's okay it's okay to have those scars, but it's also heartbreaking because we just wish there weren't so many scars. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and it it kind of circles back to, and I have this like start on my little notes that I I want to talk about. And and that really is this idea that it's okay not to be okay. And this idea of being resilient, that there is always a silver lining around every situation. I mean, that it's, it's not necessarily true. Um, And I think what's really important is understanding context. And and I've tried to share that I feel like I'm resilient because of different supports I've had. And I recognize not everybody has those too. So as many things that I've had that have been really difficult in my life, I've also had equally amazing people surrounding me, making sure I'm okay and and picking me back up or um, encouraging me in the right ways. And not everybody gets that. And there's such you know, is there's so much inequity around like what we're assigned at birth that we have zero control over, right? Uh, from where we live, our families, our um, the way people treat us, our income, our our societal standing, like those are things just right off the shoot, right? That that we didn't contribute to. 
and, and we were assigned. And there's some things I have privilege in, and then there's some things that I don't. And um, there's some people that have a lot of inequities. Um, and I, so I think it's really important that as we're listening to these survival stories of COVID, I constantly am like, give me your details, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Give me your details. Tell me what struggles you've had in your life. Or tell me, like, are you talking about, um, did you come out of poverty? Did you, were, were you also dealing with racism? Um, are you fully experiencing hatred from your family because of your gender identity? Like if those aren't, and you are like the cataclysmic privileged person that have benefited off COVID um, isolation, I'm not that impressed, right? Like good for you, but I'm still not that impressed. So I think the story that we all have to come out of a challenge as a better person, I think that's, that's mis it's a misnomer. To, to be perfectly honest, sometimes those benefits take decades to resolve. Um, and and make that that's part of resilience is the now what, right? So what are you going to do with all these lessons you've learned, these hard knocks, you know? Um, are you going to just keep them and learn from them and hide them so other people can't be successful? Or are you going to share them? Are you going to say like, hey, if I could redo this moment in my life, this is what I would have said differently or done differently or reached out sooner or you know, whatever. It's it's how do we share what we've learned? Oh, thank you so much for all of your time and for talking about it in terms of who we are as individuals, what we're doing in our society, at work, with our kids, with the people around us. I think that's so important. I think that there's no better time for us to be aware of both our resiliency, um, honoring it, as well as being okay when we don't feel resilient. Right. Yeah. That's essential, right? <laughs> if you want the long-term muscle of that resiliency, you got to know how to sit with it when you don't feel very resilient. My sincere thanks to Shambi for taking the time to speak with us. You can learn more about her work and her life by connecting with her on LinkedIn. In our next episode, we'll hear from John Littlewolf, poet, police officer, researcher, activist, Native American. And we'll be discussing compassion. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. 92,000 Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.